Today's speaker is Professor Robin Jensen, the Luce Chancellor's Professor of the History of Christian Art and Worship at Vanderbilt University. She has a joint appointment between the Department of History and Art and the Divinity School. Robin's research and publication has tended to focus on the interpretation of Christian art and architecture, whether in light of its cultural context, ritual performance, or theological significance. She teaches introductions to Jewish and Christian pictorial hermeneutics, to liturgy, as well as to courses on visual representations of God, the Trinity, Christ, the Virgin Mary, and courses on space and time. Robin's written a whole bunch of books. I won't try to name all of them, but the most recent ones include Living Water, Images, Symbols, and Settings of Early Christian Baptism. She's in the process of working on a, uh, a book called The Practice of Christianity in Roman Africa. So we're going to get a little preview of that. And she's working on that together with her husband, Atu Burns, who is the St. Augustine Fellow this semester. Um, it's a long list of articles, book chapters, um, fellowships, grants that she has been part of. I don't think you need me to read all of that. And it would be much better to get more quickly to the talk. So I'd like you to join me as we join her in a little trip through North Africa as she leads us to a thoughtful and beautiful appreciation of what Christian art and practice was in another age. The talk is entitled Churches, Cemeteries, and Shrines, Christian Ritual Spaces in Augustine's Africa. Welcome. Thank you, Father Allen. I'm going to read a little bit just so I don't get too far behind myself, but I will stop as we look at the slides. So um, undoubtedly, I'll get off my manuscript and get lost, but you'll, um, I'm sure you'll be very patient. Over the past dozen years, maybe almost 15, I think, um, a small team of scholars, which has included my husband here, um, has been attempting to recreate the lived practices of Christianity from a coordinated examination of documents and archaeological evidence from the fourth to the seventh centuries. And we could even say from the third, but we don't have so much archaeology. Among the practices we're looking at are sacred meals, the Eucharist, initiation, baptism, the appointment and roles of the clergy, the care of the dead, Christian marriage and celibacy, the cult of the saints, almsgiving, and other pious practices. The documentary evidence has been called from the writings of such notable Christian authors as Tertullian, <coughs> Cyprian, Augustine, Quadvaldeus, and even Fulgentius of Rusp. You probably haven't heard of him. but And then, insofar as possible, we have juxtaposed texts with existing material remains in an effort to situate and even hypothetically recreate these kinds of Christian practices within their original physical settings or contexts. Now, it'll not be possible to cover all this material this afternoon. And so I've chosen to focus on three often intersecting types of ritual spaces from Christian Roman Africa 
churches with their attached baptistries, saint shrines, and cemeteries, mostly constructed in an era overlapping with Augustine's life, that is, the late fourth through the early fifth century. I aim to demonstrate how the study of material remains, archaeology and art in particular, informs and expands our understanding of Christianity in Roman Africa during Augustine's time. There we are. So to give you an idea, this is the area that we're talking about. This is uh, the whole Roman Empire. And when we say Roman Africa, we mean this little part of what is northern Africa today. It was a province of the, of the Roman Empire. And we, we will speak about Africa and Numidia. There's also Mar uh, Mauritania and Caesariensis. But there's a Dizakana is another province. And then we move down into this area here, which is modern day Libya and, and Sudan. But we're not going to talk so much about that. Most of our focus will be in this little region of what is today uh, Algeria and, and uh, Tunisia. This is a close-up of a few of the cities that we'll be visiting. Carthage, which you've probably heard of from Hannibal and the stories, and Hippo, which is, of course, where Augustine was bishop. And so you can sort of see the track and trails that, that he would have gone to go from here to here. Um, today, this is abruptly where the city of Tunis is. And Algiers is this part right here. Okay. So Augustine really, today, Hippo is in Algeria, but very close to the country of Tunisia. All right, now I'm using this. This is a Roman basilica. I'm using this as a kind of an example. Um, not surprisingly, given the African church's relationship with its sister church in Rome, most early African churches were built on the traditional, what we call Constantinian model, having a high longitudinal main nave. This is the nave, very high, flanked by two or more aisles like that, and um, which, are support, which are created by weight-supporting columns, and sometimes upper stories or galleries. So here's one drawing of what the Lateran Basilica in Rome probably would have looked like when it was built by Constantine at the beginning, early part of the fourth century. The one standing basilica in the city of Rome that really looks like it looked when it was built at the early fifth century is Santa Sabina. So I give this to you as a kind of example of what this might have looked like. This is its interior. So you see these colonnades and this ending apse, very wide open space, high ceiling. Not at all a Gothic church. Um, so despite their similarities with Roman churches, early, and by this I mean pre-Byzantine, African basilicas tended to have certain distinguishing features which I'm going to point out in the few, next few minutes. Although most of the remains of fourth and fifth century churches are footprints with some low walls and standing columns and mosaic pavements like you see here, archeologists can reconstruct not only the shape and size of the original buildings, but the stages and phases of their renovation and rebuilding. Um, this is a wonderful, um, enormous basilica. You can sort of see it looks like a forest of columns 
but you can see it's apps and apps here and in the back there's going to be another sort of a shaped thing and what happened with this church is it was was tra the, the, the orientation was changed and you can sort of see here's what the original here's what we were looking at this original apps and here's what's at the back which you couldn't actually see in that photograph and at some point in time later, this smaller church was set inside of it, and it was transformed. All right. Researchers note the numbers of aisles, speculate about the function of adjoining rooms, confirm the existence of altars from footings that would have anchored them, and then record the dimensions of raised chancel platforms within apses. A chancel platform is a place where the clergy would have sat. Um, a few of these chancel platforms had semicircular seats for clergy and for bishops. And here's an interesting, a little bit more. We ha we're really very fortunate in Africa in that we have a lot more standing walls and columns than you often see in what looks like rubble to most people in archaeological digs. So this is um, an early to mid-fifth century basilica in a place called Mactaris. We think it was actually a basilica built by vandals, Aryan vandals. Um, because of an inscription that gave this name, which is a very Germanic name, not a particularly Roman name. And we can, they've kind of reconstructed the shape and sort of possibly some sort of little altar footing. The discovery of stone sarcophagi within um, some churches' aisles and apses, as here, these are tombs, these are burial or coffins, um, and the placement and depth and design of baptismal fonts places to be baptized, to be dunked, assist historians also to theorize about how church buildings accommodated liturgical celebrations and the ways that clergy and congregation moved through the rituals such as Eucharist or baptism and honored their privileged and saintly dead. Finally, archaeologists or historians take note of certain features that seem particular to a time and place and asked what those particularities could signify. Among the features that seem most characteristic <coughs> of fourth and fifth century African churches are altars that are placed well down into the center of the nave, often on a chancel extension, a raised platform. As you can sort of see here, this is a, a raised area and the altars are about here. So quite a long way from where the back of the apse would be. Um, the frequent addition of a counter apse, and you may have a hard time seeing this, but this is actually a circular apse here, and there's one here, so it's like a doubled apse. Take two oatmeal boxes, take an oatmeal box, cut it in half, and stick it on a shoe box. You get the sense of what that would look like. Um, the uh, inclusion of a, of a counter apse, oh, I see, I'm, I'm not lost my place, um, and the incorporation of special tombs within the basilica walls. So very often we find beautiful mosaic pavements, or archaeologists find these beautiful mosaics, but people's tombs buried under the floor. And that's very typical. In addition, we see the annexation of special baptismal chambers that were attached to churches. And so here is a church in Carthage, as the archaeologists have reconstructed it. And there was a, a large chamber here just for baptism. And this is sort of what it looks like now. Here's another case. This is the same church you just saw. Here is the baptistry. 
and here's how it looks today. Okay. Some, but not all of these features are portrayed in a late fourth or early fifth century tomb mosaic that was excavated from a chapel in the city of Tabarka, which is on the northern coast of Tunisia. Now it's in the Tunis's Bardo Museum, but it was commissioned originally for the burial of a certain woman named Valentia. Okay, here's her name. Uh, who is now in peace, and we hope she still is, I think, uh, and who may have been one of the founders of the church, um, which is how she would have merited such a fancy mosaic inside the church itself and very close to the apse. The picture illustrates a typical um, mother church. This is the word ecclesia mater, which means mother church. It's a very important idea in Africa. So we see a kind of schematic, almost childlike, depiction of a church. So you remember when you were little kids and you drew the house with the chimney and so forth. This is sort of what we actually have, a kind of flattened perspective. Um, but what we see here is a few features. This is a typical basilica with its columns, a triple arcade to the front, um, looks a lot like a triumphal arch in Rome, intentionally. This is the apse, and the apse appears to have a window at the back, a round oculus window and a mosaic floor, a tiled roof, a great little single-doored entrance with some windows above, and most interestingly, again, the altar pretty far back into the middle of the nave with three candles and some kind of covering. All right. Significantly African here. As I said, the altar is positioned between the third set of columns into the nave. It may have been made of either wood or stone. We can't tell from this picture, but it does appear to be a permanent rectilinear structure rather than a simple movable table. The apparent cloth covering and placement of candles confirms textual evidence from different early Christian fathers, Optatus of Milevus and Victor of Avita. But it, I, other evidence we have say altars may still have been made of wood as late as this. A reconstruction based on this mosaic um, looks a little like this, and so you can get a better sense. We didn't get the window into the picture. We might have to get that in for you. But. Two typically African features that are not evident in this mosaic include the addition of a counter apse opposite the chancel area and probably the incorporation of tombs within the space. If we want to imagine that those are tombs they might be actually depicted here. We know that this very tomb mosaic was in a church, so it's interesting. Um, okay, so counter apses or double apses typically appeared at the end, at the, at the beginning of the fifth century, and they created a distinct space at the back of the church, primarily, I think, for the burial of deceased clergy or some local martyrs. And then we see the, the, the development of people being buried inside the churches around those, those important burials. An excellent example of these characteristics uh, comes from a now lost basilica of Clef, or Orleansville, which is, and is the first of four examples I'm going to give today of almost countless churches in Africa. Okay, so I'm chosen to start with this one. This is the Basilica of Clef. 
I start here because it was for a long time considered to be the oldest surviving example of church building in North Africa. It also combines key features that reflect typical North African church construction. And I apologize that we have to work with plans because the thing was lost in an earthquake. So we don't have very much of this left. And we have very many different plans. Um, it was discovered in 1843, originally, at the re ancient Roman site of Castellum Tingitanum. Um, it's a little bit to the south and west of Algiers. It wasn't published in any scientific way until the early 20th century by an archaeologist named Stephen Cassell. Unfortunately, though the archaeologists transferred all the mosaics, and you can see that there were a lot of mosaics they found in this church, um, to a Saalbai church museum, everything was lost between the political upheavals of the French and Algerian War and the natural disasters of two earthquakes, one in 1954 and one in 1980. Therefore, we have to rely primarily on archaeologists' plans, some of them initially drawn when the site was first excavated and then modified by several archaeologists later. I'm sort of combining them here. But what we see is a relatively small, it's 26 meters by 16, double-apsed basilica. Now you see this two apses, um, which was, uh, had two aisles, one, two, on either side, one, two, of uh, the nave. And this is the nave here, the main room. Um, and, and, and possibly a gallery. There seemed to be some stairs that went up, so we assumed there might have been an a, a, a upper story just above these, um, closed off some of these galleries here. A dedicatory mosaic in the center of the nave, and it's right here, asserted that the church was founded around 324 CE or according to the inscription, the 285th year of the province. This early date, although accepted by some, is a bit dubious, since the mosaic showed evidence of having been retouched at some point, probably well after that supposed <coughs> inaugural year. So it may be that there was an earlier church on the site, and this mosaic commemorates the earlier church, but itself doesn't date to that time because art historians have noted the similarity of the style of these pavement mosaics to, um, to, to 5th century mosaics in a nearby basilica. So thus, we kind of have to think we're dating this to the end of the 4th or the beginning of the 5th century. Among the basilica's most famous features are two other mosaics found in the north side aisle, here. One is a square labyrinth acrostic and you can see there's this interesting, very interesting labyrinth, four of them, but they lead into the center. I don't think I can trace this with my finger if I've tried once, but, and it leads into the center, and what it says is Ecclesia Sancta, the, sac the Holy Church. A very interesting ancient labyrinth. If you're interested in labyrinths, this always shows up in books on labyrinths. Um, and another one, which I'm gonna show you where this was, is right, this is where the labyrinth is, and here's the one that we're looking at. I believe it's this one. And it says, Pax Ecclesiae Catholicae Semper. Um, Let there be peace to the, the Catholic Church always, forever. And that's a really interesting inscription given the African battles about Catholic and non-Catholic, the true church and the non-true church, that there should be peace um, on the church. Okay. The basilica's western 
counter apps here. And actually, this is just, we're calling it the West. In some ways, it fact, in fact, here it is. Was, is the same width as the nave. And notice, if you notice, this is a little cattywampus. It's a little off kilter. So given that this is straight on and more aligned with the original nave, suggests that it was part of the, it was the original main nave of the construction, which is funny because it's on the west and not the east. And we try to think the churches get oriented toward the east eventually. But this one arguably was originally the main nave, and at some point they turned it all over in this <laughs> direction. When they would have added this mosaic, and we'll come back to that. Um, this here has a, was probably built to a shelter, a shrine, possibly relics of Peter and Paul, or even a baptismal font. But some investigators speculated, as I said, this was, that this was original. In any case, at some point in the fifth century, late in the fifth century, around 475, it was transformed to house the tomb of a bishop named Reparatus, whose presumed remains were found in a lead and wooden casket during the original excavation in, in, 19, in 1834. Okay, and here's a drawing of this sort of placed in space. Here's what we just saw. Okay, take this and set it up, and this is what you get. The apsis mosaic illustrates the triple arched opening that would have originally separated it from the nave. Remember that three arch, like a triumphal arch. And it's Epitaph reads, here rests our father of holy memory, Reparatus the bishop, who served as priest for eight years and 11 months and went ahead of us in peace on the 11th day before the Collins of August in the 436th year of the province, about 475 CE. Whether or not this was the original apse, the mosaic floor of the basilica indicates that the, this eastern apse uh, probably did originally serve as the main apse. The three-section pavement, I'm sorry, the eastern apse at some point, because now we're going to look at this little mosaic, which I've done some details here for you, and I know they're not great, but you can kind of make, see these four squares in the center, and the center square is this, okay? This, um, this depicts a table amid vines, you can see kind of vine thing, and here's a table with two legs. Um, and that's supporting a rectangular surface. So what we suspect is exactly where the altar was. And this is a depiction of an altar. So we can imagine that when this got flipped and this got turned into the place where the clergy would sit, the altar was still placed directly here. Um, so thus it conforms in some respects to the image we saw in that Tabarka mosaic. It's a rectangular tabletop with two or four legs. And I grabbed this one because I think this is a good example of a Byzantine altar that's actually in Israel now. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's at the House of the Loaves and Fishes or the Church of the Loaves and Fishes. But I think it gives a good illustration of what that altar probably looked like that we see in this depiction. Okay, now I'm moving to another spot. I'm moving from roughly here over to here, to the town of Bulareggia. The ancient site of Bulareggia, or Hammam Gerardi, lies on the main southern route connecting Carthage with Hipparegius. You can see it. Uh, here's Carthage, 
You would have traveled that way. It had, it had several bishops, but in 411 it had one Catholic and one Donatist bishop, so competing bishops, competing sects. It was excavated in the 1950s. Now it's an unusual double church. The larger structure, I'm going to give you, here's how it looks today. One of the, one of the, it's a double church, and so I'm going to give you the plan because I can't get the whole thing in. So what you just saw was looking this direction. In this, what was the older of the churches, and this one was built a little later. So this was called Basilica One, and this is called Basilica Two, and they, you see that they share a wall and connecting doors. Now, it's an, there are other churches that are doubled like this in Africa, and it's not clear exactly what these purp purposes served. Normally, however, the second and newer church is larger than the original one, and here we have one that's smaller, which raises interesting questions. It's possible that, I'm going to probably just get off my text here for a moment, that this was originally alone. What we think happened here is that this was originally the apse, again, as in Clef, or Leon Village, one you just saw, and that it was flipped, or it was transferred, to make this the main apse later, and that at some point, this was also built in the same direction, at the same orientation. What did they do with this? Did they keep, did they have services in both of them at the same time? Did they have, like, was this the place for, you know, church suppers? I think what happened here, and there were several phases. This, originally, this is a baptismal font. This probably was um, a place for the burial of the saint of saintly bishop. It could also have been a place to hold the altar table for anointing oils, for post-baptismal anointing. Um, so once this happens, and you see how much space is taken up by Baptist, Baptist, this baptistry, this baptismal font, and this shrine, you probably needed a plain, ordinary hall just for Sunday worship. Added to that fact, and I should probably just say this, we assume that people being baptized were being baptized in the nude. This is something we can talk about later. Now, this is not a place to hide. <laughs> Those other baptistries were little rooms that were attached and you could keep everybody out. This would be hard. This is one of the few I know of where the baptismal font is smack at the back of the church. Like today, a lot of Catholic churches have baptismal fonts at the back of the church. So I'm thinking that this may have fallen into kind of less use as it became primarily a place for feasts of saints and for baptism. Okay. Um, I've gotten off my text. I'm going to sk skip on a little bit. Um, but I want us to look at this, this font. Okay. So this is what the font looks like. Um, here's, my, here's my, if it was installed at the outset, and if that western apse was the original apse, the font would have stood directly behind the altar, which had been a really weird, and in front of the chancel. Alternately, if the font was built after the building was reversed, the existing altar baldachin, which is a stone covering for an altar, very fancy, you think about that, would, would have been used to cover the baptismal font. So it's a very great reuse of something. And now when we build a baptismal font, it looks a lot like an altar covering or a reliquary covering. Um, in any case, it's 
pretty likely that the font always and at every phase had this, had this very distinctive cruciform shape, which is really beautiful, actually. The arms, as you can see here, here's, the, here's another view of it from the top, and you can see how the arms of the cross are cut off by marble slabs um, that sort of block them. And it has five steps down, so it's really deep enough to immerse somebody in water. My imagine, I imagine here that we think of the fact that the, probably the assisting deacons um, and bishop didn't have to get wet. <laughs> they could stand here in dry, in, in sort of dry holes while those being baptized would have waded down, moving from west to east in their baptism, moving from the setting sun to the rising sun as they processed through this uh, kind of font. Of course, also the cruciform shape suggests something about the fact that in baptism you're participating in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a dying and rising with Christ and happened at, most likely here, as it did most places at this time during the Easter Vigil. Okay. Now, that's, that was place number two. Now I'm going to move over to Hippo, where your friend Augustine <laughs> was bishop, your friend and ours. The excavation at the site of Hippo Regius, which is modern Anaba, Algeria, uncovered a large basilica complex that scholars have presumed to be, have just presumed, we're not certain, to be Augustine's Basilicum of Pactus, or Maior. This big space here is a basilica. And this is, this is the main road in the city. And here are some villas over here. And then this is all part of the basilica complex. When Augustine arrived in 391, Hippo Regius had at least four basilicas. And at least one of them belonged to the Donatist congregation, while others included the Oleontian Basilica dedicated to the former bishop, a basilica dedicated to eight martyrs, and, this, and a cathedral, okay, which we think this might have been. This was, this was the Christian quarter. And here's the basilica here that we just saw. Here is the main cardo or main road of the city of Hippo coming around. Actually, the form of the city is up in this direction. Here is the baptistry right here that you sort of saw some standing columns and um, very many related rooms which could have been part of the monastery and the scriptorium if, if this is Augustine's space. And over here, a very interesting three-lobed space we call a trefoil room. I'm going to say more about that soon. When it was excavated in the 19s and 20s and 30s by the French archaeologist Erin Moeck, the three Isle Basilica adjoining buildings and baptistry were all dated to the second half of the fourth century, which makes it even more likely that this was Augustine's cathedral. It completed with baptistry and had room here for living quarters for the bishop and his uh, clergy, the monastery, a scriptorium, dining rooms, and a shrine. And we know that we had a shrine dedicated to St. Stephen here. I'm guessing I hunched, although I don't, not everybody agrees, that this could have been the shrine of St. Stephen. The church was oriented with its apse on the northwest rather than the east because it had a problem. This was the main road. You couldn't put an apse into the road, and they made best use of space, I think. Thus, it could never have had a double apse. So unlike other African churches, it never received one of those. The eastern 
now we're going to call this the Eastern Apse, even though it's not to the east, um, contained a semicircular bench. Oh, there it is, another view of this. Here's the aisles, nave, and back here is the apse. I'll come back to that. Here is the semicircular bench with a seat for the bishop. Now this is actually an, a later addition. It's very nicely put in there, but I don't think it was original. Um, but we like to think, imagine that Augustine sat right there. <laughs> and believe me, everybody gets their picture taken right there. <laughs> I didn't bring those, but we're all pretty funny. We're all getting in and sitting on our picture taken. Um, now I'm going to go back to this one. The altar uh, seems to have stood on a, a low raised platform that extended into the nave from the Presbyterium. So again, not really far down, but still somewhat into the center of the space. It was equipped with a short wall or burial, a barrier, allowing physical um, separation of the clergy from the congregation, while still permitting them to be within the gathered people, the body of the community, and nearly at the same level. They were a little bit elevated, but not by much. In order to receive communion, members of the congregation would come forward to the railing and receive it from the hands of the bishops or the deacons. They would all crowd in. The floor was covered with polychrome mosaics, some of them from a pre-existing building. A group of tomb covers were inserted into the pavement of both nave and aisles, marking the grave of two, graves of two earlier bishops, and one very interesting one, dedicated to, uh, of, uh, citing the burial place of a woman named Julia Runa, whose name is, suggests she was Vandal. She's got a very Germanic name. But here we have, and it's hard to make this out, but it identifies her as a presbyterissa. Gives us something to think about, maybe to wonder about. A large cistern, it's hard to see, but this is actually dangerous. <laughs> People were yelling at me as I was walking this way, taking pictures down into it. Two, um, two big open areas that seems to have been converted at some point into a crypt. More than a dozen bodies, 11 of them infants, were interred in the vault. And that means one grown up, doesn't it? <laughs> Possibly, um, this, some scholars have speculated that this could have been where Augustine himself was buried, at least at first. Makes sense if this is his church and even his space. I mean, we do think his body was moved, but he might originally have been there. The small baptistry room lay to the northeast and set within a building that had communicating rooms, one of them with a small apse at one end. Let's see if I can get you another. So what we're looking at is this, and this is the communicating room. So we have one room, doorway into the baptistry where the font is, doorway into this other room here, and then access to the church. And here we have another picture of that, and then here is the font, okay. The, this, um, the deep modified cruciform font was covered again by, you see these columns that stand up. I should have pointed this out. This is what holds those canopies. This is the reason for these columns is to support a covering. And when you think about covering your baptismal font, you're saying something very important about what it means, and it's symbolism um, in some ways the other thing that usually gets covered in a church is the altar. Okay. Um, okay. 
Canadus would have stepped over the lip of this font and descended into water that would have risen probably to the level of their hips. It's about one meter deep. The depth of the font suggests that Canadus would could have been pretty easily submerged or nearly submerged, especially if they knelt down in the font's well. There's not a lot of room for doing the Baptist kind of baptism. I don't ever think people did that. But they could have easily curled up in this space and been water kind of scooped over them or maybe gotten their heads a little under the water. It's really easier to imagine pouring here, in fact, than dunking. But you probably could have managed the dunking. Adjoining rooms would have been used for rituals that preceded or followed the baptismal rite. The disrobing of candidates, they took all of their clothes off. Um, their their pre-baptismal and post-baptismal anointings. They would have entered from the main street, passed through the series of rooms, and after being dunked and reclothed, entered the church here to join the congregation for the first time to receive Eucharist, and probably at Easter. Some might have been exceptions to that, but we know that Easter was a major baptism, uh, baptismal day in Africa. The neophytes would have followed their bishop as he moved to the altar, and at least in Hippo, would have occupied the low railinged area, chancel area itself, which is called the cradle, for their first week as newly born Christians. Now, it doesn't look like it's going to hold a lot of people, so we might have to rethink how big we made that. In a curious story that's recorded in Augustine's City of God, a woman named Inokentia, who suffered from a cancer of the breast, was instructed in a dream to watch for the first woman who emerged from the baptistry. According to her vision, um, the, this woman would be able to cure Inokentia by making the sign of the cross upon, the, upon the, the cancer, the lesion. Standing in the woman's section of the basilica, she could see the candidates arriving, and she was probably standing somewhere over here, and would have been able to identify the very one who could cure the disease. Okay. Hippo, as I said, also had a shrine built by Augustine's deacon and eventual successor, Heraclius, to house the relics of St. Stephen. And really, those relics were just little pinches of dust. These had been brought from Palestine, or, or now today Israel, to Africa by the bishop Orosius on his way back to Spain. He stopped off and gave, shared some of his dust. Although the shrine is not clearly identified, and I think it might be this trefoil room, which we now can see, you can sort of make this out. It has column bases here, here, and here. So it's, it's, a, it's a loop, and a loop, and another one. Oh, no, there's this one. It goes like that. Right. Um, oops, I think I lost my place. Um, we can surmise that it should have been quite near the Basilica Pachas, which this would be based on an incident in which a brother and sister were cured. And the con when the congregation gathered in church for the Easter services, they heard the clamor from those who had witnessed the cure back in the shrine, um, and then of the brother first, and then three days later of his sister. So they're, they're close enough to be able to hear somebody shouting with hurrah, joy, and they came running into the church. So it can't be that would be too, too terribly far away. OK, last spot, Tebessa or Teveste. Sometimes modern, the modern terminology of the city is Tebessa, and, and in, in Roman times it was called Teveste. Stephen's relics were powerful, in part because they were from a proto-martyr, one who was recognized to the whole Christian church. But African Christians had a special devotion to their local saints. 
And one of the largest and most impressive of these shrines or martyria is the site of the, the burial or the shrine, the relics of St. Crispina, which is in Tavesta. The matron, Crispina, was a married woman, a native of Tagara in Numidia, and beheaded in Tavesta in the Great Persecution at the beginning of the fourth century. Tavesta was also a center of Manichaeanism and had both Catholic and bishops at the Council of Catholic and Donatist bishops at the Council of Carthage in 411. So they had a competing sex, and they even had some interesting uh, Manichaean folks around. So that's another whole kind of religious group. Crispina was an enormously popular saint throughout, of, throughout Africa and would have been for all, at least Donatists and Catholics alike. Even Augustine recounts her story. Her shrine was established shortly after her death, probably around 304, and soon became a major pilgrimage destination. One of the largest known to exist anywhere, it was a complex of basilica, of church, of shrine, martyrium, had a monastery, and it had a hotel or a hostel for pilgrims. It was surrounded, here's a drawing of it. You see how big this is. It's hard to know that this is, I think, 72 feet in length. It has a wall surrounding it, which is very interesting, with um, towers at the corners. Uh, and we're really wondering why we needed all this protection. And even, you know, um, and it had a major archway entrance, like a triumphal arch entrance. And this is a gathering place for pilgrims. And this is actually where they might have stored their horses and had their living quarters. Um, so we have a, um, a major like, football field size area here to come into through a big arch. Now, I had one idea that they really charged money for this and they didn't want anybody jumping over the walls. But nobody really liked that idea. But I think there's some other way of counter with this huge wall. Okay. Um, it, it may have been to give protection for inter-African conflict or even from vandal raids at some point. You know, you know, raids of barbarians coming around from Spain. But a visitor entered the complex through this arch that led into this broad forecourt here. This is kind of what it looks like. It's really hard to get a picture of this. But you can see these little standing things all throughout. And this created balustrades in order to channel the visitors. Think bank when they put the ropes up or the security going through the airport. So you had to go and these kind of wind your way through. So an, an enormous number of people coming to this place that they had to control the lines of pilgrims coming in. At the end here is a broad flight of steps which led up to a platform and into an open air atrium. Oops, let's go back to this. And this is, the steps are like down here, and then you lead up into this open air atrium, and the center was a fountain, probably for ablutions, um, cleaning your face, your hands, possibly even your feet um, as, as you were entering the church. Maybe people carry the water away also as pilgrim souvenirs, so possibly. On either side of this atrium, and, and at the ground level, or this platform level, were a series of rooms. One included a baptismal vault. I'll show you where that is. It's right here. Let me get there. There it is. That's how it looks today. Um, the presence of a baptismal font at a pilgrimage site, it's not a unique example, raises really interesting questions to me about whether people would have come 
or brought their children to shrines for baptism. Now think about that. You've got a baby, you're going on a long trip, baby's a little fragile, baby's not baptized. I'm, doesn't sound like a good idea to me as a mother. But, um, and would you also need permission of your local bishop to do this? And you, know, and you come to some place away from home, how do they know who you are? You have to have bona fides from your bishop, you know, letters, uh, letters of introduction. Tavesti's baptismal font was not this one originally. It was originally 12-lobed and replaced in the 5th century by this circular font that had a hexagonal surround and columns that supported, again, this canopy. Although it's no longer visible, the problem, because they dumped the columns now into the center of the font and there's weeds growing and there's even a beer can or two, which I think I had happily photoshopped out. <laughs> but this is when they were doing the excavations, this is what they had, and you can see at the bottom was a round marble slab with, in fact, 12 lobes. So echoing the shape of that original baptismal font, probably, but also, interestingly, echoing the shape of later altar tables. So again, linking baptism and Eucharist together, linking the, li linking the space of offerings and the space of baptism. Okay. From the atrium, where the fountain was, one could enter the basilica through one of three doors, Paired columns, you can see them here, supported an architrave, okay, a, a big slab that went across the top. And above it, a gallery. The choir came well down into the nave. You can't see how far down, but almost to here. You can, this is enormous. Um, and had footings for an altar at about the second bave from the apse. I think if I can find this on the plan for you. So, here. And here's the forecourt, here's the font. Now we're going to move to show you that. The south aisle opens up to this. This is probably the structure that was the first on the site. It is the martyrium where Crispina was buried, or at least some parts of her were buried. And the whole ensemble was then added to it as time went by. So what you can imagine is a procession that would have started from here and then made a left turn this way to go down into the martyrium during this festival of Crispina, or just even every day because you've got pilgrims arriving constantly to this place from all parts of the world, or at least all parts of Africa. Notice this little square here. Okay. This is the flight of steps that went down, and you can see part of that square here. And then turning around, you can still kind of make out the three lobes. This was an inscription here that said something about Crispina, and here was her tomb. Um, excavators actually discovered in here a vase that contained a few bone fragments, as well as mosaics, indicating subsequent burials, most of them clergy. Um, by the way, her feast day is coming up, December 5th. <laughs> okay. Now, just a little bit of time left. I'm going to do something really quick. I'm going to talk about cemeteries and try to get through it quickly um, because they're pretty interesting. Africans, as I said, buried their dead often within the walls of the church and inserted decorative mosaic covers over their graves. Here we have some examples. Um, many of them were beautiful birds and flowers and fountains with inscriptions like names, privatus, he was a presbyter, um, 
Disciplinus, um, might have been two people here, I'm trying to think. Uh, I gotta try and translate that quickly. This was Flavius, you know, Vital Flavius Vitalis Episcopus, okay, a bishop. We even have images of Jonah <laughs> and some biblical characters from time to time, though they're more rare. And wonderful portrait mosaics of the deceased. And there's some really interesting ones, and many of them. So here's a woman with a veil. Here's a, um, a young, I think, a girl, actually, Crescentia, Innocence in Pace. She's in peace, possibly just recently baptized, and she's still innocent. The birds on the shoulders are very typical. Okay. This one is actually um, two women, and it says in translation, Privata, one woman's name, and Victoria celebrate the triumph of their consecrated virginity and victorious confession, so they withstood maybe some kind of test, bearing trophies and wearing angelic robes in peace. And then we have a crown here, and inside the crown it says, a worthy crown for worthy victors. Um, here's another one of these, um, a man named Crescentius, who was a deacon, um, here, who lived for 65 years, and his brother, Britannicus. <laughs> they buried them together. This man's name is um, Victor Victoriate, um, and he gives the, uh, in, he's right to rest in peace, and he lived for 25 years. Okay. <clears throat> Occasionally, whole churches were constructed specifically for the purpose of honoring clergy. And in this case, at least, in the cemetery of Basilica of Alexander in Tapaza. This is not a church that you would have had services in. This is purely a funerary chapel. And it was done to celebrate primarily one bishop. It was in the middle of a large graveyard. So there already were tombs here, and then this kind of um, enclosure was made, and it's called the Chapel of, of Alexander the Bishop. According to a mosaic inscription found on the site, Alexander commissioned the construction of a building within the ancient cemetery to the west of the city that would contain his own tomb, as well as the bodies of his nine predecessors, the nine bishops before him. These guys happen to be buried in this little, in this little um, crypt. And so he translated these nine of these bodies, I believe a couple back, and put them here. His inscription is here, and then there's a dedication to the nine um, righteous predecessors of Alexander. So he created a kind of cult of clergy here, which I think is so interesting and maybe typically African. Um, the raised rectangular platform at the eastern end held the sarcophagi of these revered men, and we can see kind of a picture of uh, last summer, a bunch of us standing in the space and looking at that, and here's the raised platform, and you can see the coffins here that have been exposed. Um, the rest of the structure, roughly 23 by 14 meters, was furnished with these really interesting, well, here's the one of the inscriptions, that was messed up, these semicircular stones that had cutouts here, and people would have their funeral banquets here, which is another very typical Roman but also early Christian practice. You came to the cemetery with food and offerings on the anniversary dates of the death of your family members, but then also the saints. So it's how we get a kind of cult and feast of the saints. People actually did feast in cemeteries at little round tables like this. 
as you can see, this cutout here might have been this very one that's in the museum on the site. And so it says, in pake here. We can still make it out. It's a memoria to Avia et Bavaria, <laughs> two women. And a Cairo with an alpha and omega, and two roses to indicate the kind of gifts that you brought to the tomb, among as well as food. You brought roses. Red roses, in particular, were appropriate to bring into funeral feasts. Okay. As the funeral, as the Alexandra Chapel, the cemeteries and cemetery churches alike contained these stone tables and couches that were used for funeral banquets at the time of burial and on subsequent occasions, including the birthdays of the deceased, and the old Roman festival of the Parentalia, the an ancestor honoring. Despite the objection of church authorities, Christians continued to practice this custom of dining with their dead, which included preparing and sharing simple food items and pouring out libations into the tomb itself. Augustine encouraged families to turn these banquets into opportunities to give alms and bring these commemorations inside the church. But he never succeeded in totally rooting out the practice, nor did any of his fellow bishops. Tomb epitaphs continued to note the date of death and marked anniversary commemorations. Physical evidence of cemetery banquets continued into the 6th century. And even into the late Byzantine era, era burial areas featured communal banqueting tables as well as facilities for drawing water and washing up. And that might have been used by visitors as they came to collective grave areas. One famous example is an epitaph of a certain Ilya Secundula, dating to around 299, so it's, it's really pretty early. And it was found in, I think that's actually a, a typo, I think it's later than that, it was found in the region of Mauritania Sidifensis. And I just wanted you to hear this beautiful text um, written by probably her daughter. To the memory of Ilya Sukundala, we all sent many worthy things for her burial. Further near the altar dedicated to Mother Sukundala, it pleases us to place a stone table on which we, with food and covered cups, remember her many good deeds. In order to heal the savage wound gnawing at our breast, we freely recount stories at a late hour and give praises to the good and the chaste mother who sleeps in her old age. She who nourished us lies soberly forever. She's not drinking. <laughs> we are. <laughs> She's not. She lived to be 75 years of age and died in the 260th year of the province, made by Statulinia Iulia. Finally, um, a very beautiful mosaic mensa, one of these funeral tables, was found in the very, near the very spot of Alexander's Basilica, a little bit outside of the enclosure for Alexander himself. And this is a, a, a wonderful um, expression. We have fish here, um, which is very typical of North African mosaics and also baptismal fonts. And it says, in Deo, in God, and there's a cruciform here um, with what we think is probably an alpha and omega. So you could say in Christodeo, if you want to, or not. Pax et concordia sit convivio nostro. Let there be peace and concord on our banquet. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful wish and a prayer associated with a funeral banquet. Finally, in conclusion, finally there. Certain distinguishing features of North African basilicas and shrines and cemeteries can be, I believe, coordinated with 
important characteristics of early North African Christian theology and practice. First, the placement of the altar well into the center of the main hall emphasizes the connection of bishop and clergy with laity, especially during the Eucharistic liturgy. We can speculate that this central placement symbolizes Augustine's particular understanding of the relationship between the bishop and the members of his flock. Although the bishop preached from the cathedra, his seat at the back of the round apse area, the presbyterium, or occasionally when he was visiting another church from an elevated ambo, when celebrating the Eucharist, he was among and surrounded by his community. Such a position concretely would have expressed his belief that the clergy and congregation were together the body of Christ, whose head, Christ himself, was acting on their behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. We can't know this for certain, but I think it's safe to assume that the bishop, Augustine in particular, faced in the same direction as his people when offering the sacrifice. Again, thus expressing his union with, rather than distinction from, the rest of the members. Second, the accommodation of the cult of saints with reliquaries under altars and the burial of the privileged dead in counter-apses and beneath the nave and aisles means that churches had a double function as cemeteries and shrines as well as places of ordinary assembly. In certain instances, as in Clef, this prompted a reorienting of the building and the addition of a second apse to the west. The incorporation of the dead, especially saints and deceased clergy, but also many of the ordinary dead, symbolized the presence of the whole company, the great cloud of witnesses, past and present, as their participation in the church's liturgy on earth as in heaven. And let me stress that Romans would never have thought to do this. The idea of burying people inside a building rather than outside in town in a cemetery was a really interesting Christian transformation space. Finally, the construction of these large pilgrimage shrines and cemetery churches, like the one at uh, Teveste, further elaborated the cult of saints, which became a universal cult and was one of the most vital aspects of African Christianity and had impact on other dimensions of religious practice beyond the Eucharistic celebration. For example, when baptismal fonts were built within pilgrimage complexes, were people wanting to baptize at the site of saints, baptize near the saints, as they wanted later to be buried near the saints. And these tall stone canopies over the baptismal fonts indicated that they had become shrines themselves. We have a couple examples, in fact, where baptismal fonts were transformed into reliquaries, I believe. So the honoring of deceased clergy further with special tombs and privileged spots of burial, even their own funerary chapels, also moves the cult of saints up a new level, or perhaps even democratizes it, in a time when martyrs were no longer being made. They played a role in the complex competition also among different groups claiming to be the true Church of Africa. In conclusion, I hope that this somewhat sweeping and harried survey of North African Christianity's art and architecture has demonstrated the value of coordinating material and archaeological data with what we have in the literary remains in order to give a fuller picture, I mean, I mean really a picture of Christianity and Africa at Augustine's time and beyond. Thank you. You're worried about keeping it to an hour. I was. Well, thank you for keeping us interested. Um,
of the wonderful pictures, most of which you took, I think. Yeah, one of us took. <laughs> I'm not sure which one had the cameras any day. So if there are questions, I think Robin would be more than happy to uh, welcome them. mosaic you showed, it was like a garland. The garland was going in a kind of counterclockwise mm. fashion. Is there any meaning to that counterclockwise? Because I know other traditions, it's clockwise. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really thought about that. Um, it's a wreath. Correct. Um, so it has a little bit, and whenever you see a wreath in Roman art, it always just means triumph. You know, it's like, like right. the kind of thing that you got as an athlete. Um, how do I think about that more? I had, yeah, it's interesting. My other question is that it's directional. Where east west directional issues, did they have a symbolism and importance? That's a great question. And um, certainly, and I don't know if I can speak, maybe you can tell me about Augustine. In, in, at least in baptism, certainly. Um, we have in other places bishops describing that you would enter at the east and move the west and move toward the east. So there is a sense of from the, the setting sun to the rising sun. And and of course Christ is going to come back from the east. So you want to be facing in the direction that Christ is coming back. So in the baptismal ritual, I think very often if there's a directional option, if there are steps going and there's steps on the east and the west, and there are many instances of that, that it seems Simple and obvious to me that you would be moving from the from the west to the east, but it, I you know I can't get in time machine and go back and see it. But I do think that has meaning. Um, the Constantinian churches they were working out for a while um, which direction they wanted to orient, and and orientation is not consistent. Um, so when Saint Peter's was first built, it was oriented with the door at the east and not the west, and it was a little idea of the rising sun. Um, so. But I think as people start to really have an opportunity, as much as space and land allows you, they would try to orient with the abstinence. And I think that's why you also see the trends, the flipping of these churches as well. And then so you're, so you're going to build an apse on that side. Well, we have to do something useful with this apse. turns into a really great place for burying people and, and having another kind of um, chapel-like space. Uh, did the conflict in North Africa, the, the religious conflict between Donatist and Catholic and later Catholic and Arian, play any role in the transformation of the churches or shrines in the building of apses or orientation or anything like that? It's a really great question and we have no evidence for anything that we can identify as Donatist architecture or obvious Donatist or, or Arian. Um, there was an archaeologist who tried to make a case that had a fancy baptismal font. It was probably Donatist because they were rebaptizing adults, right? That's an interesting idea, but I don't know if it holds up very well and how we'd establish that. Um, it's just a kind of speculation. Um, so, and, and in, in one case or two, we do, we can actually pin, I think at least in one city, we can pinpoint the Donatist church clearly because it has an inscription with the name of the bishop that was Donatist at the council. But it's really hard to say much more than that. And I, and um, without, you know, I have ideas about identifying Aryan art in, later in, like, in Ravenna, but I don't see anything that I can do that, with that here. It's just too bad. I wish I could. But Byzantine is too. Yes. What happens in the Byzantine period is they do bring more Byzantine kind of a centralized dome. They move the altars back. 
things begin to change at the, at, after the reconquest in, in the um, 543, um, and then after that in the whole Byzantine period, things are looking a little different. But they, sometimes they keep some of the old African traditions and kind of graft them into the Byzantine traditions. Um, I, I came in a few minutes late, so I may have missed this, but from what I saw here, there's a lot of, uh, there's the fishes, there's funeral portraits, is there a lot of imagery of Christ? I mean, or, or is that something that they tend not to put in mosaic? I mean, is, is, is there any, is there like a theology of, do you have the, the, the image of Christ or no, or? Um, there are almost no portraits of anybody um, other than the dead. dead. Um, we have a few, they're beautiful little uh, terracotta tiles, which have some biblical scenes. You can see Jesus and the woman at the well appear sometimes, Abraham and Isaac. Daniel is very popular, actually. Um, and there's a few faces with pointed beards that people say are faces of Christ. That's the best that I have, which is sort of interesting. Um, because from about 400 on in Rome, they were now doing actual portrait images of Christ and the saints. So it's not translating down to that part of the world, at least that we have remains of. But Christograms. Christograms. Lots of Christograms. Oh, absolutely. And particularly on the floors of baptisms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I could show you, let me show you the slides I didn't show you. <laughs> um, I'm looking for this one. This is a baptismal font that's in Svetla, um, which my students love because, I can't I can say this, this is a woman's vulva, <laughs> I think. And so this whole idea of rebirth, and that's, you know, I'm not the first person to say that. Um, and there are people who would challenge it, say, well, it's just an undulating lobed space. But um, it's a, here, if you can make it out, at the bottom of this is a Christogram. Um, and so as in, uh, I thought I had it here, there. I don't, you don't see the bottom of this one. This is a four-lobe baptismal font, and the bottom of this one is also a Christogram. And what that means is that people were standing on a Christogram as they were baptized. And there's, a, there's actually a law in the Justinian Code, or is in the, is, maybe it's in, um, yeah, it's in the it's Justinian's Code, not the Theodosian Code, that you're not allowed to stand on a cross or a Christogram. But this is an exception, um, I think. Well, these are all early. The, well, yeah, I'd have to check. I'm not sure how much earlier. Yeah, not if that's isn't yeah. right. Um, so it's kind of interesting to think about sort of the symbolism of, of putting yourself there, maybe kneeling on it as you were baptized. Again, we have to kind of speculate this because we don't have a lot of information to work from. So we're always sort of taking what we can from the text and taking what we can from the art and saying, how would they have done this? <laughs> how many people could you get in this room? Um, and why? Because the culture has a has a cross, but mm -hmm. not a Christogram. Yeah, Paul has a, this one has a cross. No, it does, it does have an Alpha and Omega. It has, yeah, has the Alpha and Omega. And then um, around here, it has the um, Pax and Terra, uh, Omnes, Peace to be all uh, men of goodwill, um, the text from Luke. He's on earth and to, to men of goodwill, I had to kind of bring it out. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you.